Welcome to another episode of Tiffany Madison Conversations. In this episode, fresh out of chemotherapy, I sit down with Janice McAfee, my friend and sister who was married to my former boss and mentor, John McAfee, inventor of the infamous cybersecurity antivirus software. Did you know that John McAfee's body has been ruthlessly disregarded by Spanish authorities and attempts to lay him to rest have been stymied for over two years? We will get into that and more. When I first met Janice, I had joined John McAfee's fledgling 2016 campaign in the last few months of its activity in order to course correct. And since day one, Janice and I got each other. What I admire most about her is her perpetual state of overcoming. Trauma is a human condition and how we choose to handle it defines us. And Janice has encountered adversity after adversity and is still growing through the process. She never claims to be perfect. She is humble and sometimes self-effacing in a genuinely sincere way. But at her core, she has a huge heart, which is what John saw in her. So in this episode, we update listeners on the fight to reclaim John's body. We also talk about the 2016 campaign trail and some other memories that the two of us have. We talk a little bit also about John McAfee's undiagnosed post-traumatic stress disorder, which is something I observed firsthand, something he and I discussed very often, and something that the media continues to completely gloss over as they create this villainous narrative uh, in his memory. And so before we begin, I have some housekeeping to account for. It is December 31st, 2023, and I have been re-diagnosed with stage four triple negative breast cancer. I've been back on chemotherapy since October, and we've moved our entire family of five to Seattle, Washington, to go all in with Dr. Ben Chu, the only oncologist in the country, with the courage to get inventive with treating my crafty cancer. And unfortunately, after a couple of months, chemotherapy results have been mixed. The lymph nodes under my left arm are stable, which hopefully means the chemotherapy is working anywhere else if rogue cells are drifting around my bloodstream. But we have progression too. I'm currently awaiting CT scan results, but I don't really want to see scans anymore. They won't change anything about my attitude or my choices at this point because they've given me three to six months to live. I've been given that prognosis before and I beat it one time and I'm going to beat it again, but the metastasis left behind by the surgeon has spread deeply into my breastbone and across my very beautiful skin along my mastectomy scar. And I have successfully dodged opioids through this entire experience uh, quite pridefully until now. Um, But you don't get a gold medal (laughs) for suffering in this experience and the pain is unlike anything I have ever endured and I've had many miscarriages and delivered two babies and so I am now on morphine for the foreseeable future. Uh, Last week I spent six days in the hospital with a crashed immune system and yesterday I had multiple blood transfusions so if you donate blood thank you very much. To recover from chemotherapy, this has helped me tremendously, and I feel better today, but I am in the same trap many patients find themselves in of balancing which would like to kill you first, the chemotherapy or the cancer. And luckily, I've been doing an East meets West integrative approach since the beginning, and so I have a lot of alternative modalities at work, but all in all, the cancer is still progressing. And so... 
we have to get aggressive, uh, meaning that I will be flying to Dallas next week to meet with Dr. Heather MacArthur, a leading oncologist willing to move mountains for me. She has an ongoing trial, but she has also arranged for a biopsy on the skin metastases to find out why it is not responding to chemotherapy when other areas of my body are. Um, unfortunately, I returned from a round of second and third opinions just a few weeks ago, and the consensus was that the radiation on my chest, which was very intense, might have created a secondary cancer. And I guess we'll find out soon enough. But all in all, I have two choices. I can keep doing what I'm doing and start planning an end of life celebration, or I can get extremely aggressive. And though my fear of death has been mostly eradicated by a spiritual rebirth and a profound and transformative psychedelic assisted therapy experience, I definitely believe that my husband and children need me. And I have a lot of love to give and a lot of work to do in this world. So my integrative doctor, Dr. Christine Hauser, is the principal investigator in a trial starting in three weeks. And the technology that will be used in the treatment that I will be engaging in is called targeted osmotic lysis, or T-O-L, which will be in the show notes for other caretakers and cancer patients that are listening. This is a novel technology that involves concomitant stimulation of voltage-gated sodium channels and pharmacological blockade causing lysis of highly malignant cancer cells. And the technology has been successfully used on 50 cats and dogs with exceptional results. And my next podcast episode, I will be talking to Dr. Hauser and we'll dive into this technology, what it potentially offers other breast cancer patients. Uh, she's also a stage four breast cancer patient herself, and also the hopes from the trial and what we're uh, anticipating. And so this novel therapy is currently awaiting the FDA to prioritize the core team's ability to conduct trials stateside. But since America is a corporate oligarchy, I will have to go to Honduras and pay for the treatments out of pocket. They are roughly $12,000 a piece, and I need several, so I will be crowdfunding more. I already have multiple treatments covered thanks to my family and my savings, but I've been fighting this fight two years, and it's not cheap. So uh, if you find yourself called in any way, shape, or form to help me, there is a 501c3 foundation that my sisters have established, the Tiffany Madison Fogg Foundation. And in the show notes, I will leave the link for contributions to that. I also want to say thank you if you are listening to this and you have already donated. I have literally gone through so many emotions through this experience and being diagnosed pregnant and going through chemotherapy pregnant, delivering my daughter, resuming treatment only to progress to stage four, and then now being given an even tighter timeline uh, on my lifespan has been an extremely taxing and emotionally draining experience to say the least. <laughs> but through this experience, I have found myself in tears and so grateful and full of gratitude for the people who have supported me and that gratitude has almost in every situation systematically replaced my fear. And the gratitude I have in my heart for every single person who's helped me along this journey, it's just endless. And so if you are one of those people and there's ever anything I can do for you, a loved one, someone going through this experience, I don't care if it's jumping on a Zoom for 15 minutes to give you a pep talk, you contact me. My information, my contact data is all in the podcast notes. You can also go to my website, tiffanymadison.com. And of course, I'm on every major social channel. It is the least I can do 
to serve fellow patients for all of the abundance and love that I have been shown through this journey. So I am very optimistic. This technology has successfully resulted in animal trials and extended the life of one very brave human patient before she died due to the FDA dragging its feet on her emergency use authorization for the technology. And I will not allow these unelected bureaucrats to kill me too. And so that courageous woman gave me the hope I needed to make this choice. And I hope to be that inspiration for someone else. So again, if you know someone who is in my position or who needs this in treatment, put us in touch. There are 15 of us or so going, and I will help anyone who needs this support. I am scared. I will not lie. Um, you know, this is, this is um, one of those things where you really don't know what's going to happen. But one thing is very true. All of the humans that I admire, that I have spent a lifetime trying to emulate when the chips are down and things get rough, they get in the fucking rocket. And that is what I will do. So patient number three, that's me. I have no time to waste. And so I will go big or go home, ladies and gentlemen. And that is my motto. So I ask for continued prayers, please, and for my children. Pray like we already have the disease stable. Pray for my courage. Pray for my strength. Pray for my heart to heal. Pray for the miraculous and supernatural healing coming my way. And I have been put on this path by divine inspiration and will continue following it wherever it leads. So I love you all and I look forward to more updates soon. And without further ado, the one and only Janice McAfee. Hey guys, Tiffany Madison coming to you on behalf of Seatmatch, my favorite sponsor. Building an efficient team is no walk in the park. We have all been there. A role opens up, a mad dash to fill the spot ensues. And let's be honest, for most of us, it's a little better than a guessing game if that candidate will be a long-term fit. Getting it wrong is costing us all money, growth, and that most precious resource that you cannot get back, your time. So allow me to introduce you to Seatmatch with the motto, hiring the perfect fit guaranteed. Seatmatch isn't merely a hiring firm, but a strategic partner in meticulously crafting the ideal team. Seatmatch navigates through hundreds of candidates, utilizing their high precision hiring funnel to present you with the top two to three candidates. So listen to this. They have an astounding 92% success rate in ensuring an industry-leading fit. They even offer a 12-month guarantee, which is completely unheard of in recruitment. So visit seatmatch.com today and find out how they can revolutionize your hiring process and tell them I sent you and get 10% off your first hire. That is seatmatch.com. Thank you so much for joining me, Janice. Uh, you and I have talked about this for a while and we finally made it happen. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's always good to talk to you. Yes, I appreciate you. We go way back and we're about to take our listeners on a quite the journey. <laughs> um, so for those of uh, who heard my introduction, they're, you know, passingly familiar with who you are and what you're all about, but I would love to give you an opportunity in your own words to just briefly tell any listeners who you are and what your story is. Okay, well, my name is Janice McAfee, and I was married to the amazing John motherfucking McAfee. <laughs> um, something that he's so, um, I think he probably named himself that, so that's, that's awesome. 
anyways, <laughs> yeah, we were married. And um, what about me? Um, who I am? I'm just Janice, you know, like, I don't, I, it's so weird to answer this question. So I'm sorry. Like, it's like, what do I say? And I, I feel like the coolest thing about me is that I'm a mom of three <laughs> uh, beautiful children. And also that I was married to John McAfee. So I don't know what else to share <laughs> about, you know, just about me, but I guess I could give a little bit of history, you know, of me. Um, so, um, you know, when I, I, when I met John, I was working as a prostitute in Miami and I had been doing that for the previous nine years. So I met John in December of 2012. So well, it was close to 10 years. I had been actually working as a prostitute. I was in a very abusive relationship. I had a pimp who was um, violently beating me. And so um, obviously, my dream was not to be a prostitute I don't think there's anyone that that's their dream or or an aspiration of theirs so it just was um kind of a perfect storm of um I want to say maybe I I kind of felt like um I brought the situation on myself in the in the sense that I didn't make always the best decisions when it came to men And, and um and so I felt like what was happening to me, the abuse was something that I deserved. And so it it caused me to stay in it longer than I probably should have. So when I met John, I felt like it was an opportunity to escape that life. You know, I, I, I honestly felt after us meeting and we sat and, and talked for like three hours when I first met him that night and, um, him just sharing with me his story and how he came to be in Miami because I knew nothing about him when I met him um even though he was top of the news in Mm -hmm. you know in Florida you know but I didn't watch the news so I had no idea who he was what was going on with him at all and so he was kind of um (laughs) he was kind of almost insulted by that that I didn't know who he was (laughs) (laughs) um and so he proceeded to tell me, you know, from his perspective, who he was and what he had just been through and how he um, escaped that situation in Belize. And I just remember thinking, like, this man is going to change my life. Mm-hmm. You know, if I if I play this right, you know, this man could literally change my life. And for me, play this right only meant that if I can somehow allow him to see me, you know, I'll allow myself to um, be vulnerable enough that I can let him see behind this wall that I I had, you know, built up because you have to, you know, when you're in that industry, you know, there's, there's, you, you do things to protect yourself, you know, and I, I wasn't um, someone who was into drugs. That's not, it wasn't my thing. Um, I drank, but, but I was very cautious on that because you obviously put yourself in a situation where you can be very vulnerable to violence happening to you if you're not, um, if you're not sober. So, um, so those weren't my vices, you know what I'm saying? But, um, but I just felt that, um, I never thought of it that way that you had things happen to you. Yeah. Well, yeah, yes, of course. I mean, I feel like, um, a lot, a lot of the time, these things that happen to women in that industry might, might've been because they were, um, you know, high or drunk or something, you know? And so, um, well, before we move I on to John, can I ask you some some deeper questions? Yes, I'm sorry. So, 
no, you're fine. Um, so I'm the one being nosy. Uh, so <laughs> part of the, the, this podcast is called the curiosity offensive, and it's all about attempting to reignite curiosity as something that can sometimes be offensive, but it's not intended to, to do that. We also, you know, you're a walking contradiction, right? You were raised mm-hmm. by a, by a Christian minister and then, you yeah. know, fell victim to sex trafficking. That's I knew about a little bit about your background. Um, and so I think that the complexity that you navigate the world with uh, inside of yourself and just the complex environments that you've always found yourself into, morally complex, um, have given you a very interesting perspective on life. And so if you're open to it, I'd like to just talk a little bit more about the human trafficking component. Okay, yeah. So uh, when I first started working with you, you and I had talked a million years ago about thought leadership. And part of the reason why I was so excited to try to nudge you and encourage you in this, because when you speak about the human trafficking epidemic and the crisis that's actually happening in this world, it is the modern slave trade that nobody's talking about. You are very passionate and I respect that and I admire that. And I know that a lot of that passion is born out of your own personal suffering, but I feel like you are open to transforming that passion eventually, um, first things first, um, but, you know, for yourself, for other women and trying to share with them your journey and what you went through. And part of what I love about your passion for this is educating other women on what they can do to either escape their situation or try to shore up the confidence to navigate out of it. And so with that being said, you had shared with me one time, um, something that I wanted to share with the audience as well, that I had called your former, uh, work situation as a, I called it sex work and you corrected me. And I would love for you to share your opinion on that word and why we use that word and what should be used alternatively for people who are trapped in a prostitution, human trafficking situation. Um, my, my dislike for sex work is just because I feel like it, there's a different connotation when, when we talk about sex work. Well, like we think about women who, who are maybe dominatrix, who maybe are voluntarily in this industry, you know, who get into it because they just like having sex, you know, they like um, maybe the dominant aspects with the, when we're talking about the um, um, sort of the dominatrix sort of field of that, you know, or, or even the porn industry. You know, not 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 everyone that's in um, prostitution or, or sex work. Well, let me say, not everyone that's in sex work is is being trafficked, right? Or has a pimp or anything like that. But when we talk about prostitution and we talk about um, sex trafficking or being trafficked, we're talking about people who are in a forced situation. You understand? Mm-hmm. Or a coerced situation. Right, they're not voluntarily there, even though, um, even though they may feel like you know this is my choice. You know, on on some level, there's some coercion happening. You know, where whether it's violence or whether they're being fed drugs or or whether they're you know been all well kidnapped and forced into it. You know, so I like to separate the language because we we have this thing about language where we try to change what words mean to try to soften you know, what it is. And I don't want to soften it, which is why I'm, I'm, I'm not proudly proclaiming, proclaiming that I was a prostitute, you know, but I'm not ashamed of it either because I, I wouldn't be here, 
you know, I wouldn't, I would have never met my husband, but more importantly, my story would not eventually, which I hope it will eventually help women that are currently in this situation or have been in the situation and not just the prostitution aspect, but even in an abusive relationship, you know, that's very demoralizing, you know, um, in my situation, I wasn't in love with with my pimp there it wasn't a love thing and I would imagine that there's a lot of women that maybe aren't in love with the person that's abusing them it's just a shame thing you know like who do you go to who do you tell this is what's happening to me you know um for me I didn't have I didn't have anyone you know what I'm saying and and not anyone that I trusted that wouldn't look down on me or 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 um try to shame me for for putting up with it or, or force me to do something I wasn't yet ready to do. You know, I wasn't ready to go to the, to the police and, and get a restraining order or try to go to the courts and testify against, like, that's not where I was at because I felt like, that's you scary. know, I, I had, I'd seen enough stories where women had done that. And what happened? The man still found them. The man still, in some cases, murdered them. There was a woman, a story that happened, I believe, in the Bay Area, um, where the woman, um, her husband or ex-husband had found her, and she had done all the steps. She had gotten the, the restraining order. She moved away. You know, she wasn't contacting him, you know? She did all the right things that they say you should do, and he still was able to find her through acid in her face and completely, you know, changed her life forever, you know? And, and what happened to him, you know? And so for me, it just, I'm just weighing the, the consequences of if I took those steps, like what, you know, he wasn't a big enough deal where I would, I could get FBI protection, right? Where they would put me in witness protection yeah. or something like that. Like he was just some regular nothing, you know what I'm saying? So, so um, I, I, and I think that's where my passion comes in at because we, uh, for me, just having someone see me, you know? see me as a person and not just a piece of me, you know, was, was really, um, amazing, you know, and John did that, but, but before there was John, you know, there was other people and sometimes it'd just be some random person in the store, you know, that just said hello, you know, um, or sometimes it would be other women in the situation, just, just sharing, um, an understanding word, you know what I'm saying? Not really speaking about what's happening but speaking around it you know where it's like I understand you know we we get each other you know it's just it was just something that you know you could grasp onto as a way to kind of say you know um, I'm not alone in this situation I guess and so that's hopefully what um, you know like you said first things first and but once this is done I'm hoping that um, I can use my story to be to be something that inspires women to to figure out how to um find the courage within themselves to get out of the situation because not everyone's going to meet a John McAfee right but also not everyone's going to need a John McAfee I needed I needed one you know what yeah. I'm saying um I needed him to help me feel safe enough to um to get away from the situation you know I I needed I just needed that you know? yeah um, thank you for sharing all of that with me. Um, I wanted to ask you one more question on this and then we can move on. Um, how can you, can you tell, I would imagine that from the listeners, there's a lot of dads. Um, most of the people who listen to this podcast, a couple thousand people are mostly men. Um, and they're over the ages of 30. 
And so I'd imagine some of them out there are dads. Um, can you share a little bit about how this happened, how you feel like you fell into it, how, and then, you know, if you could give advice to any moms or dads, right. Uh, to help prevent this from happening for their children, what would you recommend? What would you advise? Um, so first of all, you need to stay all up in your daughter's business. Okay. <laughs> like I, I don't care what she has to say. There's no such thing as privacy. You need to be all up in her business. All right. There's no, um, obviously, you know, privacy in her bedroom, whatever, you know, but you, yeah. you can decide as the parent, what, you know, sort of privacy you're going to allow your child to have. But we're, as we're talking about what they do online, no privacy whatsoever at all. It doesn't matter. You know, you're definitely not talking to no boys, you know, make sure that they, you meet the boys, bring them to the house. I mean, you need to be all up in your daughter's business because my parents were, or not so much that. Yes, I was raised in a Christian home, but it was more of um, a religious thing as opposed to like a real relationship with with the God of, of their religion, you know? And so, um, and for me, I had a lot of freedom. I had a lot of, um, I had a lot of no supervision, right? So I was able to do a lot of things I should have never been able to do. And um, uh, that's 90s kids in general this. thing. <laughs> I didn't either. I basically did whatever I wanted <laughs> after a certain age. And yeah. I was like, yeah, mom, sure. You know, I'll be there. And uh, my sisters who were older at the time were like, did you call her friends and verify that that's <laughs> actually what she's doing? My mom's like, no. She was raised in the 50s where everybody did what they said. And I was out, you know, doing things I'm not yeah. talking about on this podcast, but definitely wasn't uh, a page appropriate <laughs> activities. That's for yeah. sure. So yeah, that's, right. that's great advice. Oh, nothing was, you know, and I had, like, I had, you know, I tried to do like things that, because I had problems with school. I wasn't, I didn't like school. My dad was not, um, he wasn't a great teacher for me. So it was difficult for me to, to want to continue in school. So I tried to find activities in school where I needed to keep my grades up so that I could participate in them, but I wasn't allowed to do them. You know, I, I basically was only allowed to come straight home or, or be involved in church activities. And so that wasn't enough for me. And so naturally I gravitated towards doing the wrong thing because I just felt like, well, everybody else is doing whatever they want to do. So I'm going to do that too. Like nobody's paying attention to me. Nobody cares about what I'm actually doing. You know, I can literally tell you anything and you're just going to accept that. So, okay, that's what I'm going to do. You know, now, you know, obviously in hindsight, that wasn't the best thing, obviously, you know, cause look what mess I made of my life, but, but just not having supervision and, and not feeling like and it was just more than not having the supervision. It just felt like I didn't, like I was this bonus child that wasn't necessarily wanted. You know what I'm saying? Because all my siblings were 70s babies. And then here I come, the 80s baby, the only 80s baby. And and so it just kind of, in my mind, confirmed that I was just this unwanted child because I had no supervision. I had no one like actively involved in my life. So, so that's how... Um, the need to be um the need to be included right that's how that was birth right and so then it was like okay well what do what do i need to do to fit in with these people and then you know um 
I was raped when I was 15. That was my first sexual experience. And so from there, it was like, well, okay, if they're just going to take it, then I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, you know, give it out to who I want to give it out, you know, since taking it is just an option and just a thing, you know? And so, and so then from that became, okay, well, this is my value, right? What I can do sexually is what, what I have a value. And that is what opened the door to, you know, to the pimp coming around. And, and so, well, I guess I should say that's what opened the door to me having that warped sort of idea about sex you know that when the pimp introduced the idea of being paid for it it was like it wasn't as bad to me because it was like okay well I'm having sex already but I can get people to pay me for it okay (laughs) you know and so you know but but um but yeah from that and and I don't know why it was that easy to just make that you know but by that time I was already being beat up you know and so I don't know if that had something to do with it as well, but, but these are just all the things that if I had better supervision, I feel, you know, even if it's me getting in trouble, something, I just had nothing, you know, I just, you know, um, unless I was really getting in a lot of trouble and then there was, you know, that intense attention for a couple of days and then, you know, everybody went back to their normal lives, you know, and so, so really please just stay all up in your daughter's business, even mm-hmm. your sons, not just your daughters, yeah. but your sons as well, mm-hmm. you know, because they need you. And, and I will also say, because there's, there's a high um, divorce rate and there's a high probability that, that the parents, the birth parents are probably not together. Don't let whatever issues you have with your, with your child's mother or father get in the way of you being a parent to that child. No, don't, don't ever let that be an excuse for you to not be involved in your child's life, you know, figure out a way to, to, to work it out or figure out a way to just work around it. But your child needs you no matter what, at the end of the day, your child needs you and they want you no matter how they fight against it. You know, when they get older, they'll look back and say, damn, I'm glad I had my, you know, I'm glad I had this helicopter mom, right? Or or this helicopter father, whatever, you know. But I mean, obviously there's there's boundaries to that, there's limits to that. But and you as a parent know that, you know, no one can really tell you that. But you you know your child better than anyone. And so I just just be involved. It's it's important. That's fantastic advice. And uh I tell my kids all the time, you're gonna you're gonna look back on this and appreciate it one day. And they're like, yeah. oh, you know. <laughs> uh, but I tell them that all the time. I'm so obnoxious. Um, and I, I, I let them know they're going to appreciate it all one day. It doesn't feel like it right now. Um, it took me a good 25 years for me to really get it. And then it, I, I think now that I've, you know, told the whole cancer experience, beat that and came out, did that while parenting, it really mm-hmm. gave me an appreciation for what our mothers and grandmothers went through um, in terms of just navigating adversity, right? And staying focused on your family. And um, that was, that's, that's really great advice. So, you know, most of the people who are tuning in um, may not be completely familiar with the fact, obviously the beginning we talked about uh, that you were John's wife, but tell me a little bit about your relationship with John. Um. So, so our relationship was amazing. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. Um, he's the first man I ever fell in love with. I like ever. And I think that was a part of the problem. 
at least initially because I just didn't want to I didn't want that to be the thing like I don't like I didn't I was was like actively fighting against that because we're you know he's not Richard Gear and I'm not <laughs> Julia Roberts like we're this is not Pretty Woman remake right I know I mean I just was like no this is not gonna be the thing you know I was I was um oddly very proud of the person that I had created that prostitute I was proud of her you know that was my creation you know what I'm saying and and she was you know she Street was smart about her money savvy she was, about her money. She, mm-hmm. she was smart and she was loyal and she and she she did all the things that she was supposed to do as far as the rules of the game go you know what I'm saying and so obviously that person could not then be in love with this person that she met working right that like that can't be a thing and so um so there was a lot of uh, fighting against that but it was just undeniable the the connection and I don't know that it was necessarily a love connection um definitely not at first um but it grew into that but I think what what um what sparked it off was just that that street smarts that I had so there was a there was this beautiful dance that was happening with that with his um with his need to be uh, I guess aware of his surroundings at all times because that happened immediately when I went like when I met him and we were sitting and talking in front of that coffee shop um on Ocean Drive on, my, on South Beach he had his back to the coffee shop and he was literally watching the cars as they were driving by watching the people you know, something that I would do, you know, if, if I was, you know, uncomfortable with my surroundings. And so, um, so I picked up on that um, very quickly. And when we, he was able to feel somewhat comfortable with me, um, because of that uh, knowledge that I had gained from, you know, my years of working. And so from that, it just grew into into the the partnership that we had and um and I I don't know it was just such a unique and crazy relationship such a, a crazy roller coaster ride of um you know nonstop danger nonstop excitement you know um it was yeah it was you know it was John McAfee so I witnessed it, it. so if anyone <laughs> is ever doubtful um I'd like to dive into that a little bit so for those who are listening they may not be aware but when I first started working for John McAfee back in 2016 I was a journalist prior and I uh, basically decided when I sat down with John that I was going to interview him before I took the job and I drug out all of his dirty laundry that I could find online and I questioned him all about it and he was extremely candid and gave me answers that never wavered I never saw inconsistency. So I believe that they were the truth or he was just really good at repeating those lines, but I think they were Mm -hmm. the truth. And one of the things that I learned about you very early on was that you brought together, I think brought out of him a protectiveness. And it was um, beautiful to see because I just think you were his ride or die. And the protectiveness that I watched him bestow on you 
was more geared around your, I would say like emotional safety. If that makes any sense, like, Hey John, can we go do this? You know, we're going to need to travel for this and we'll do this and we'll do that. And he's going to be like, that's going to be too much for Janice. Let's just not do that. Not that things were too much for you, but it was like a consideration because you guys, if I remember correctly, we were going to be traveling nonstop during that period. But there was a, given the, the, the nature of your loyalty, your extreme loyalty, I would have imagined that John would have been like, Janice can do anything, but there was a tenderness in his protectiveness of you. And I don't think people saw that very often, um, but I got to witness it firsthand and I got to see that. One of the things that I would love to know from you is, do you think that John had his own PTSD and that maybe the relationship that you guys had kind of softened that hard shell he had acquired navigating through the world? Do you feel that? Do you feel like that would be a true statement? Um, definitely. I mean, look at his life. He, he definitely had PTSD, but I think, um, so I think anybody that knows a little, even a little bit about John McPhee can understand where that PTSD comes from. But I think something else I want to touch on is that with, at the height of his wealth, right, which he, you know, had for, you know, however many years, right, you know, running McAfee and then up until he left Belize, where all of that, what he had left was stolen from him. Um, so when I met him, the only thing he had was the clothes on his back. That was it. And so um, all of his money, his homes, everything was stolen from him in Belize. So um, so during that time of having that wealth, he, he you know, expressed to me that he never knew who his friends really were, you know, and, and he never knew, you know, if they were laughing at his jokes because they were funny or because, you know, he, he was Mr. Moneybags, you know what I'm saying? And so being living in that sort of situation, I, I would imagine would, would bring its own PTSD. And so I think um, part of, part of the uh, connection as well, for me anyways, was, was that he was able to just be himself. He was able to just be John, whoever that was, whoever he decided that he wanted to be, you know, in that moment or in that day or whatever, you know, and, and that was cool with me. I didn't try to change him. I didn't try to make him be something uh, that I wanted him to be. I just allowed him to be himself, even the parts of him that got on my last flipping nerves. <laughs> I, you know, it was like, okay, you know, that's who you are. And, and, and so I think there was an appreciation for that, you know, that um, that he could be himself and, and be comfortable and knowing that I was okay with that, even if I didn't like that self, you know what I'm saying? And so, um, but on a bigger scale, I guess the, the PTSD of never knowing who to trust, you know, never, never knowing, um, never being able to really let your guard down. But I think that was something maybe he just came to, to live with right it's just something that became natural like breathing you know because that was the thing for me you know um this sort of survival mode that I had been in been living in that I'm still kind of living in is just second nature to me you know so it's nothing it's it's trying to learn how to live out of survival mode that's kind of you know new and and kind of unnerving for me but but it's 
that survival mode is kind of, it's just nat a natural default. And I, I would imagine it was the same for him. Um, it's just more intense, just more on a more intense level, um, which I've gotten to experience since, you know, since his death. And it's, it's pretty freaking intense. And I don't know how he was able to, to manage it. And, and, and I think um, there's many reasons for my loyalty to him, many reasons. But one of, one of them um, was most important to me that is that no one should have to be alone in this world. And I felt like if I walked away from him, who was going to have his back? You know, who's, who's going to have his back? in the way that I knew I, I would have his back, you know, mm -hmm. um, you know, our, our situation wasn't perfect. We weren't, we weren't perfect. You know, we got on each other's nerves a lot and he <laughs> liked to push my buttons. He was, he was a master at pushing my buttons. He's very he, good at it. <laughs> he enjoyed it. You know, it was, he really did. <laughs> he was such a troll. <laughs> and, and, so, and I would look at him sometimes and be like, really? <laughs> And he yeah, said, when he you did. and Matt have been married longer, you'll understand. I'm like, we've been together 12 years, sir. <laughs> and I don't understand what you just said. So, stay out of and, and we weren't even together. I mean, the totality of our relationship was not, I'm sorry. No, you're good. It was, not, it was not that long, but it definitely it was very like, intense. It was very intense. Um, so if you're open to telling some stories, um, yeah. one of the, one of the, um, so Bloomberg recently, as you know, did a podcast series on John called Foundering, the John McAfee story. I broke my silence with the media uh, in order to participate in that podcast because I was hopeful that there would be some more detailed, nuanced storytelling. What unfortunately happened is that Jeff Weiss, who you and I both know very well, and um, the other woman, I can't remember her name, Nanette Bernstein, um, the two of which, if I remember correctly, um, allegedly might have actually had a, an affair with each other. And they're, you know, mm -hmm. bonding over bashing John, essentially. But um, they basically dominated the podcast. And it was the same uninteresting, tired narrative that John is this crazy you know, whatever, narcissist, psychopath, dark triad, diabolical madman genius predator whatever it is that they were sensationalism one of the unfortunate realities of this perpetual betrayal of john is that they rob his legacy of its complexity and i know i keep using that word but it's important complexity yeah. is what makes humans dynamic and fascinating mm -hmm. and the complexity with which john lived his life is truly so remarkable i cannot say more confidently that he was the freest man i have ever encountered in my life yeah. truly right. and um and it was wonderful to to work for him for that reason but the element of his the elements of his life that were deeply traumatic he and i had talked about them once and i had asked him do you think that you have ptsd and I had told him, look, I've, I've volunteered with a lot of veterans. I've worked for veteran service organizations. I was a crisis counselor. I wrote a book about veteran mental health, all la di da di da And here's what I have observed, John. And I explained to him that the behaviors that he was engaging in looked like complex PTSD. And that 
when I said to him, have you ever considered going to a therapist and talking to a therapist? And he thought that was hilarious. And he said, yes, when you find, <laughs> yes, he said, you can either bring back Freud from the dead and then I will talk to him or Carl Jung, or um, you're going to have to find me somebody that can handle me. And if you can achieve that, then I will entertain it. And I'm like, well, you're just going to troll him the whole time. But yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. So, so if you look, you know, within the frameworks of complex PTSD, which I know that I have experienced and that you have experienced and that John has experienced. And quite frankly, what we're learning about trauma is that it's just a human universal and that we pass it down generationally. And, you know, that can influence everything from disease manifestation to the current situation of the world we have in right now because we've been carrying down intergenerational trauma since the time immemorial right um so so you know do you feel like that could be an explanation for some of these behaviors that everyone else who didn't really know john keep attributing to malice um in what in what way okay what what behaviors specifically are we talking about? in any way do you feel like in any way do you feel like he and again I'm not trying to give him an excuse right I'm not trying to give him a cop out for being an eccentric genius that's just who he was but I feel like I feel like there were more PTSD trauma related behaviors like the paranoia for instance Bloomberg is like oh you know he was this paranoid schizophrenic and he did all these drugs and that made him paranoid I saw it it did right but could it also be less about the drugs that might have been amplifying a core wound and having the core wound actually be living extremely uh, ostentatiously <laughs> throughout your whole life and, and having encountered a lot of trauma along the way, right? That If I had experienced some of the things that John has shared with us that he has gone through, right? Like I would have some paranoia too. Okay, let me let me first say this um, because I think people forget that John McAfee is John McAfee and so no one came into his space that he didn't have a full dossier on right <laughs> whether and who controlled it or whatever who knows and so he always knew what was being said was being transmitted about himself okay and and um my situation with my pimp where he was approached by um, the cartel representative and paid and, and gave assurances that I would be the middleman to help them collect John is not a unique situation. So meaning that I was not the only person that came into his life, whether they were paid to, whether they were uh, uh, blackmailed to or coerced into doing that. Um, I was not the only one. So there was a constant um, sort of revolving door of people in and out coming with different um, hidden agendas. I will say it that way. And so this is where, this is what the, the paranoia came from because he's having to wage this war against people, these bad actors who are li literally lying to his face, right? You know, where he knows exactly who they are, who sent them or whatever. But that was just his thing. That was just something that he did, which was bring people in. He wanted to bring you in as close as he could so he can understand 
who you were, what you were about. And, um, and so maybe a lot of the things, even with Jeff Weiss, I think he spoke about him and how he understood that there were some ulterior motives there. And so he messed with him. And he did that whole, I think he told you about the story about the, the sleight of hand with the revolver, you know, where he, he made him think that, um, I, f I forget what he did, but he, you know, <laughs> in, like he was going to, you know, kill himself. So we, we have that situation. Now let's speak to about, let's speak about Nanette Bernstein, right? She was calling him. Well, explain to, explain to people who that is. I did kind of skirt okay. through that. Sorry. Yeah. So Nanette is actually the, she was the producer or director of the gringo which was the first netflix documentary uh, showtime 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 yes i'm sorry showtime documentary um and so she oh yeah it was showtime okay um but anyways so i um so she was either the director or the producer so she was calling john and asking him you know hey do you want to be a part of this documentary and this like you know no we were, we'll give you a fair chance to talk and now in the meantime while she's trying to schmooze and 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 do her best use car salesman to get him to be part of this documentary every person that was in the documentary had already called john and told them that she nanette burst bernstein and showtime had been down there and had paid all of these people the people that were specifically in the documentary from belize were all paid to say the worst things about john okay and he knows this already while she's calling him trying to act as though this this documentary is going to be above board you know and there's nothing shady going on and he literally had a um what's his name eddie mccoy if any of the viewers have seen this gringo documentary eddie mccoy who was mac 10 who was the man who allegedly was the hitman that they said john hired he had sent john a copy of the western union receipt for nanette bernstein had paid him three thousand dollars for his story and the person that said um i forget his name in the documentary that said he delivered John's check to this hitman. He was paid $12,000. You know, these people each called John and said, hey, you know, this, I just want you to know this is what happened. You know, they were giving out money and, you know, I need the money. And John, oh, he said to each and every one of them, you know, if you have to tell them that you saw me eating babies, tell them that, you know, tell them whatever you need to tell them to get paid because he couldn't, he wasn't there anymore. Like he, they weren't, those people used to work for him. So they had money, they had a steady stream of income where they could take care of their families. And so they didn't have that anymore. And so he was perfectly um, comfortable with them doing what they had to do for money. There was no problem. But, and so that's just one example of the type of things that he dealt with, right? And yeah, the kind I, of information that he had. Yeah. You know? And I'd like to share something about that. So we were driving around in New York Times Square when all of this was going down. And for people who are not aware, I was the director of communications and investor relations for John's publicly traded company. He pulled me over from the campaign and had me fulfill that role. And so I was in the middle of all of this. And um, when the documentary broke, we obviously had quite the crisis communication problem on our hands. And I was asking John to be extremely sensitive with anyone he talked to from Belize because we wanted to kind of get a handle on the story before it got worse. And 
I remember driving around in this limo with Investopedia, the guy uh, from the journalist that was with us. And John took a call against my request from a Belizean phone number. And I asked him to please stop talking. He said, hold on to me, you just wait for me. And I, of course, always trusted his judgment. Um, and it was one of the guys, I cannot remember his name. And he was in tears. And he was explaining to John that he just saw the documentary and was so sorry for the what he did by accepting money from Showtime and lying. And he admitted to John that they asked him to basically come up with brainstorm what the worst thing you could say about John that would make people lose respect for him. And he was admitting to John that he was an active participant in all of these, this, this whole shenanigans. And he was sorry. And part of his apology to John was because his family had greatly benefited from John being a benefactor when he lived on the island and John funded his businesses and sent his children to school and supplied dinner for his family. A lot of people have no idea that John did that stuff. And John let him get it out of the system. And then he said, listen to me, my friend, it's just the media. I do not care what they say about me. Did your children eat? He said, yes, of course. And he said, then I don't care. You can say whatever you want to say about me as long as you get that check. I'm not there to support you anymore, brother. And I can't help you. And honestly, the situation in Belize is horrible. And so I would rather you say, use me however you need to use me in order to get what you need to get. As long as you don't lie about me doing anything illegal is pretty much what he said. Right. And that guy was bawling on the phone and said, thank you so much, John. Thank you so much. And John left the phone and I sat there and I looked at him and he looked at me and he goes, well, there's that <laughs> like moved on, like no big deal. And I'm like, what just happened? <laughs> you See, know, this is, but for and every people. day it was constant like that all day, every day. And unless you've been at that level and, and seen that type of frenetic activity in someone like that's life then it's deeply you know it, it's not it's so foreign it sounds so crazy and so if you're just some you know milk toast journalist that's never been in danger before this sounds truly like the machinations of a paranoid schizophrenic right yeah but this is but this was normal right this was sean's normal life you know and i had you know, like I said before, the documentary even came out, you know, months he had been talking to people. So he knew exactly what was happening. Um, but a lot of people didn't uh, didn't know what was happening in his life, you know. Um, and so there, there were just things that he needed to protect himself from. He just had to. I'll give you another example. So from the, the second documentary, Running With The Devil, there's um, a scene, there's some scenes of us on our boat um, where John's armed, he's walking around, I'm armed walking around. I think I, I might have threatened Robert King and told John to shoot his dick off. I don't know. I think, <laughs> I think Robert loves you anyway. It was just a joke. I was just joking, maybe, anyway. So, um, <laughs> so there was, so we were, and then there was a scene where we were kind of searching underneath our bed. And so, 
a little context of that situation. John had, you know, we had just left America and John had just closed his account. And so his money that he had came, had just arrived to him in cash. So half a million dollars in cash that he had on the boat. Okay. So what do you think that these Bahamians were thinking? They knew that the money was there. They knew the money was there in cash, half a million dollars. So what do you think that they were plotting and planning? Yes. So this, was he shooting on the boat? You damn straight he was shooting on the boat, right? Was he acting crazy and erratic? You damn straight he was because that way it kept everybody on their toes. And, and whatever plan that they thought that they were going to execute, you know, that went by the wayside, right? Quickly. Because it's like, okay, we don't know what we're dealing with here. This man is crazy. See? And so that's, so he played into a lot of the times that crazy paranoid um, um, headlines that people always like to talk about, you know, to keep people off balance. You know, you never know what he's going to do. You don't ever know what to expect. And, and obviously there's great advantage in that. Even with when I was his campaign manager and he took to the stage to give his, um, oh, sorry, before I move on to that, if anyone's listening and they're really curious and they want to validate what Janice is saying about the gringo documentary, there's a website called www.showtimegringo.com that we put together a million years ago that actually has article links and references to John's evidence that these um, individuals in Belize were paid. I forgot, but I wanted to, to circle back on that. If anybody wants to take a look at that website, enjoy yourself. Um, yeah, I, I had asked him to, um, whenever he was doing the Libertarian Party, that final speech that he gave, which is on my YouTube channel. If anybody wants to look up John McAfee YouTube, Libertarian, Tiffany Madison or something, it should pull up. And I could put it in the show notes as well. But um, he gave a very rousing speech. And before he went up there, he said, I said, what are you going to talk about, John? I haven't seen this yet. Can you give me an advanced copy? And he said, no. And I was like, come on, man. <laughs> Don't do this to me. And he put his hand on my shoulder. And he said, Tiffany, if you learn one thing from me, it's to tell your story first so that nobody can tell it for you. And when I'm doing one thing over here, you can be certain I'm doing one thing over here, right? And he made the little hand gestures from the left to the right, um, which I said, of course, you're going to say that. But what are you saying on stage? You know, uh, I got nothing from him. And then he gave a fantastic speech. And I told him, you know what? That, that was that was beautiful. Thank you. And he was like, pretty sure the campaign's over, but you're welcome. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, it is what it is. But I, you know, he was very explicit in explaining that if you're paying attention, these are the things he's doing. I think part of it was he was bored, right? Um, I had shared with John always, one time. Always, always bored. bored. He, was, <laughs> he was the most bored person I've ever met because he would just find reasons to be active. And, um, you, you know this more than anyone. And so one of the things that he would often do as well is just literally find reasons to troll. And people mm -hmm. don't understand that. And I told him, I said, you know what? I think you might have a little bit of the man on the moon syndrome. And he's like, what does that mean? I don't remember where I picked this up from, but it totally was true. And I was like, well, imagine what Neil Armstrong does on a Saturday. Like he stepped on the moon. What, what else do you fill your life with, you know? And I'm like, you invented the cybersecurity industry. What else do you fill your fill your life with? You know, it's, it's kind of a an interesting conundrum to have and I saw him fall victim to that a lot because it was sheer boredom of being a, a playful genius and not having any, enough 
individuals around you that want to also play. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Do you agree that with that? <laughs> yeah, for sure. He, and usually when he got bored, well, at least you weren't around for the well, the well, oh my gosh. We're around for the wet? For the well fucking, excuse my language. Oh, the, no, 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 I was. I, I messaged him and said, what are you, what are you doing? Doing? And he thought. And it just went down from there. I just, I don't even know what that boredom, what that level of boredom <laughs> was. I Like, I can't even. I can't even address that. Like, I and people still to this day think that that well fucking is an actual thing that he was involved <laughs> in. It's so weird. And I, you know, I, I wish the worst thing that he talked about was eating his dick. If Bitcoin didn't become a million dollars, but once the well fucking came, it just went downhill from there. I just, yeah, I don't even know. I literally yeah. was like, what is happening? <laughs> What are just full-on debauchery after that like what are you doing right now you know and it's like okay I'm just gonna I'm just gonna stay over here and do what I'm doing and just mm-hmm. ignore what you're doing you because sometimes it's that you know sometimes it's he does things to get a reaction and it's like okay I'm not gonna react to that because that's just stupid so we'll, let's go on with our day okay he <laughs> <laughs> yes. was a lot of fun he really was a lot of fun um yeah Thank you for sharing that with me. Um, you know, we've got plenty of stories to tell as well. Um, later on, I had uh, considered the idea and I, I really do like the idea when things kind of settle down a little bit of writing a book called what McAfee taught us and to take his working with him out of the land of um, judgment and ridicule and conspiracy theories about personality disorders and all this other stuff and more about the lessons he taught us, right? Even the funny ones. For instance, I'll share one really fast that I'm sure you'll appreciate. Um, John was not a fan of ICE media because if you know, if anyone's following this, they know John was uh, basically caught in an unfortunate situation in South America trying to escape the Belizean government because metadata on a photo that was published by Vice was not removed, allowing the authorities to find him. And so when he ran for president, I did a massive media outreach and I brought eight, you know, the Libertarian Party likes to pretend it was Gary Johnson that the media came for, but it was for John. And it was because I opened John's Rolodex that he handed over to me and pitched all of them and persuaded them to come to the event and to be there with us. And so uh, during the campaign, Vice wanted to get an interview with John. And so they were just hunting me down and harassing me constantly. And so I said, you know what? Here's the address to the campaign headquarters. You're more than welcome to come by. And if I have an opportunity, we'll bring John out and he'll talk to you for just a few minutes, right? Well, I didn't know John hated Vice. (laughs) So they show up before I get there. And John tortures them for at least two and a half hours before I even got there. He brought the film crew inside. He made them dinner. He made them drinks. He got them nice and tipsy. And then he started the existential philosophical conversation where I walk into this scenario two and a half hours later Camera crew stuff's everywhere. People's shoes are off. John's working his magic. He's half a bottle of vodka or half a bottle of scotch in and is 
basically convincing this journalist that he has made the wrong career choice because if he can't even look himself in the mirror every day and explain to himself why he's a journalist, then he has obviously erred. And John was there to help him figure it all out. And he literally had this man in front of a mirror saying to himself, <laughs> I am a truth teller. I am the fifth, you know, the fourth estate. I am the, and it was, I was like, what is happening in here? And John laughed so hard. And he said, I've just been fucking with you guys this entire time. I'm not giving <laughs> you an interview. Get out. And the guys were like, what? Because they were thinking, wow, I'm just going to let John troll me for two and a half hours. And eventually I'll get that footage yeah, never saw the light of day. <laughs> but when I, when they left and I kicked them out, um, John was waving politely to them. And I was like, what was that all about? And he was like, Tiffany, I love you. And you get it 95% right. But this 5% that you got wrong was a big 5%. Don't ever let vice in my house ever again. Next time <laughs> it'll be five hours and I'll take them on a fucking fishing trip. <laughs> so if you have not worked at that level with people who are that irreverent then he sounds like an absolute maniac but part of his mania was his genius and his brilliance and you know the being the crazy one that steve job talks about because you really think you can change the world only when you think you or you can only change the world when you think you can and so um yeah, that was fun. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to tell that story. I knew you would appreciate it. Of course, of course. Yeah, there's so many stories like that. So many stories. And I think his love-hate relationship, or maybe just his hate relationship with the press is is um is warranted, you know. And just speaking about because because they always like to harp on the paranoid and and all of that, but maybe he was, but but is it really paranoia when people are after you? You know, is it really paranoia when, when you do have this constant threat over you? Now, maybe the threat was sometimes more serious than it was at other times. Um, maybe the threat was more just annoying than it was anything else, you know, yeah. but it was still a threat and it was still constant. And, um, you know, a lot of times, yeah, he went overboard, you know, he he um, operated on on minimal sleep a lot of times and um you know initially like when we first during the beginning parts of our relationship you know I would try to tell him you know listen there's nothing happening everything's cool but I learned very quickly to just you know first of all shut up you know <laughs> and just let him do what he needs to do because I understood that because there were certain things that I needed to do for myself to to feel safe right and so uh, whatever that looked like. And for him, that meant he needed to watch. He needed to, for however many hours, right? He wanted to make sure his surroundings were okay. And if the dogs are barking erratically and, you know, he's on that, turn off the lights, you know, we're going dark, you know, and nobody on the phones, quiet, you know, whatever. That's what he felt he needed to do. And, and when we let him do that, it worked itself out, you know, and nine times out of 10, there was never anything happened, but, but there's always that one time. And, and I will um, tell about a time this <laughs> happened. I had actually, I was in California with my kids 
and I come back and everybody's tired and the lights are off and John's got the flashlights going and he's in the and he's like, you know, and so it's like, everybody's like, man, yeah, he's been like this for a couple of days. And so the security, you know, they're just exhausted. And I'm like, okay, listen, just let him do his thing. You know, I don't know what's happening, but just let him do it and it'll be over quicker. Right. But if you try to keep telling him that nothing's happening, then he's not going to believe you. And you're only going to, you're only going to um, cause him to be more amped up for, for a lot longer. Right. So just let him do what he's doing. And so this was when we were in North Carolina. So what happened was a dog started barking out um, towards our driveway where you come into the property. And um, he fires a warning shot into the ground, <laughs> right? So so we don't know, you know, nobody nobody sees what's going on, but the dogs, the dogs, um, are, first of all, our dogs never bark at nothing, right? They're always bark, barking you know, at something. Now, whether that's something, what, if it's dangerous or not, you know, that's something for us to investigate, but they're never just randomly barking. That, that wasn't our dogs. Um, the puppies, we had two German shepherd puppies. So they, that's the, the, dog, the dogs I'm talking about. So, um, so what happened was then at, I think it was about six in the morning, two men come walking down on the driveway and these fools thought it would be a smart idea to try to come and repo one of the vehicles that someone had put in their name that they wanted to then take back. And so they thought it would be a good idea to try to covertly come onto our property mm. and, and repo the vehicle. Now, this was not some, you know, a, illicit plot to, you know, kidnap John or do him physical harm. No, but it was something, right? It turned out to be that one time that something was actually happening, you know, and so, you know, little things like that, you know, then again, not always where there's something, um, a, a, a high threat level happening, but, but there was always, um, danger and, and a lot of people didn't know what was going on, but if you paid oh. attention, you know, people, if you paid attention, people understood, you know, and, and, um, it would be nice if people would come forth and be honest about their their dealings because you know it's 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 known well it's known within our our household you know and people that paid attention and that understood what was happening and um, but obviously that won't happen um but I, but I would just continue to reiterate now that and and then let's let's I think it's time to to shift maybe too now that he's dead right and he did not commit suicide right yeah. that is a great he didn't, segue he didn't was... die the way that they said he died yeah so can okay. you and yeah. yeah 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 no can I, you... I'm more so, than happy to yeah I mean that's great because I, I would love to to talk about that more um so um you know this is such a well first of all I also want to say one thing before we move on um John, I picked apart John's argument about the cartels haunting him, right? When I first started working with him and I poked holes in the narrative and I'm like, well, why would they care about you? What is this, you know, the kill switch. And John's argument was that I have data against them that I'm going to release and I'm not going to show it to you, but I'm going to tell you, this is what I saw. And one of the things that he had shared with me is that he felt extremely and supremely arrogant 
for assuming that when he hacked, counterhacked the Belizean government after they raided his compound, if anyone's familiar with the story, he thought that they were going to be talking all about him and McAfee this and McAfee that. But what he really found was sex trafficking rings and illegal dealings and human trafficking, trafficking human trafficking, passport selling, all of these passport things. selling to mm -hmm. yeah. He found all that stuff and mm -hmm. the level of detail uh, that he provided about this and that and what is this and all that to to the media right um made that in and of itself you know a, a, an unfairy detailed list of the things that he encountered what john said to me though is that cartels institute what they call an all call so if you owe the cartels money if you're on their bad side if you have um done anything to upset them they have a, just a running list of things that you can sign up to do for them that will get you out of your debt. And it will get you back on the good graces of the cartel. And he said, they have an all call on me. And anybody who wants to come and try to snatch and grab me, it's a free for all. So I got everybody that I'm dodging. And I did not actually believe him. I still had in the back of my mind some pretty significant doubts, right? Because it just seemed so far-fetched. Then the, the circ some circumstances happened where he wasn't able to go to a speaking event that I had set up for him because of uh, an unfortunate kind of relatively public attack. And when we came back, when he came back, you and you know, we picked you guys up at the airport and we were talking about what happened. And I had eventually pulled him aside the next day and said, are you sure that this, you know, didn't happen? And he said, watch this. And if you, I don't know if you were there, but my husband witnessed it and he called the captain of the Sinaloa cartel in the living room and had a conversation on speakerphone with him. Do you remember that? I don't know. If, I don't know if I remember that with you, but he did that even with me. And I think he, um, I, I witnessed him do that a few times. Uh, one, one in particular where the this person had just got a new phone. <laughs> like literally had just got the new phone. That was it. Because he said, this is a new John, phone. Okay. Get the phone number. Okay, yeah, yeah. And John's like, yeah. 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 And he said, Mr. McAfee, Mr. McAfee, we don't do those all calls. That's old school. We don't do that anymore. You know, what are you talking about? I have no idea what you're talking about. Nobody does that anymore. You say, we, nobody does that anymore. Nobody does that. And John said, well, why do I still have these people hunting around my property? Why do I find Mexican candy wrappers in my backyard? So, you know, when John changed his security detail after that attack, um, my husband and I basically introduced him to all of our veteran special forces network. And started asking our veteran friends to become John's security detail, which is pretty much was what he did until he took to the high seas, you know. Um, and even they had said, you know, there's a mixed bag of, of post-McAfee service reviews, right? Of like, well, he's a little paranoid. Well, you know, but even my personal friends who worked for John because of me corroborated a lot of his paranoia. And he might have taken it too far and it might have been yes. extreme, but here, yes. but but portraying the entire um response to the this like it's just made up right yeah is, like it's just extremely it's insulting number one and two it robs the story 
of its complexity because there was a lot more that was very interesting going on there. Um, and I just don't feel like anyone's telling that story. So anyways, um, thank you for the opportunity to, to say that and to validate that for readers or for listeners. Um, okay, so moving on. So most people have no idea what's going on with John McAfee's body. They have no idea. They just know that he allegedly killed himself in a Spanish prison. Like, tell me what what's going on. Tell me what's going on. So, um, so when John died, um, well, for, can you back they, up a little bit? Tell people tiny okay. what what he was arrested for, what he was doing. Okay, I'm sorry. That's okay. That's right. Okay. So, um, we were in um, we were in Europe. We had been in Europe since um, July of July of twenty nineteen, and um. We were kind of traveling around, moving around, you know, no problem. We never had any issues with border patrol, with immigration, with um, customs, nothing. Um, we had flown, I think a month or so before his arrest, we had flown to Germany. We were just gonna go and hang out there for a little bit. Um, but then while we were mid-flight, the COVID restrictions were reinstated. And so we had to fly back to Barcelona. So we flew out of Barcelona. John gave his passport. There was no problem with his passport. And we were able to come back, no problem. So um, October 4th comes around, October 3rd, actually, was when he left. And so um, he's flying, he's going to fly over to Turkey to um, meet with some friends. Okay. And so he goes to the airport and he told me when he went through security, his passport had been flagged as stolen. And so they detained him. And so then the next day, that's when this warrant is um, manifested or, you know, just um, materializes all of a sudden. Um, and this warrant was for extradition to America for tax related issues for they said tax, I believe it was tax fraud. Um, or something there I mean you you guys can google it to get the exact charges what he was exactly charged with but it was tax related and so um we he so he goes to jail obviously and he goes to the prison the Brian's one uh penitentiario um anyways and um he's there for a little bit before I'm able to speak to him but in the meantime uh his friend's here in Spain that he had uh, recommended this attorney. And so that's how he got his, his um, legal representation through his friend. And I, I was to get him some clothes because apparently you can give them, you know, they can wear their street clothes. So I, you know, sent him all sort of warm clothes so he could be warm because it was, you know, that time of year and it was cold and things. And well, I was so happy when I was finally able to talk to him and just, um, hear his voice, you know, and so we spoke every day. Our phone calls were three times a day, eight minutes a piece. And, um, so yeah, that's what he was initially arrested for tax related, um, charges. And we got him additional attorneys, um, after the new year, believe it was after the new year, we had to get him uh, an, a tax attorney in America to help the Spanish attorney here fight the extradition, properly argue, you know, what exactly he's being charged with. 
but then how not serious the charges are, you know, or how serious they are, which they weren't at all. The tax attorney explained that at, at most it would have been a slap on the wrist. He might have had to pay a fine, but he was not looking at jail time at all. Most people and don't. So, know uh, they don't know that. Yeah. Yeah, it was nothing serious at all. And they actually never even said what, how much money he owed. So, you know, and then also he hadn't filed taxes since he had come back to America from Belize. And he was very vocal about that, extremely vocal in his interviews. He spoke about it all the time. When he was campaigning, he spoke about it all the time. You, and, you know what he said to me when I asked him about that? Because I was like, you know, I agree with you. Um, and I was already working out my tax stuff too, because of all sorts of stuff. And so we talked about that. And he said to me, I am not cattle and the government is not a rancher who's going to slaughter me for profit. And I don't want to be treated like property. I'm not a slave. And the way that they're treating American citizens, people like that, you are a tax slave. You are cattle on a farm. And if you wander off that farm and don't give them your pound of flesh, then they can kill you. Mm -hmm. And he's like, that is the highest form of tyranny I've ever heard. And it's the foundation of why this country revolted from its kings to begin with. So why would I comply with something? Why would I comply with an institution that treats me like a slave when I am a free man? Okay. What I say, freest person I've ever met. <laughs> Yeah, and he was serious, you know. He was he serious. Was to die on that hill, right? He and, said to and... me, "I'm looking forward to the fight." He was mm -hmm. looking forward to a public last stand that was going to be his greatest hurrah. And I talked mm -hmm. to John the entire time he was in prison. We have multiple tons of communications back and forth. He was extremely clear to me on that. Yeah, definitely, definitely. He was not. Um... Yeah. So anyways, no, he was not in any way suicidal, like, um, not at all. Um, so, so we'll, we'll fast forward to, uh, to the day. So, well, leading up to, to the court date, we, you know, we had, um, spoken by this time, um, he had five attorneys working for him. He had mm -hmm. the initial, uh, Spanish attorney who was recommended by, um, his friends, he had two American attorneys, um, one for the tax charges, and then there was another SEC thing that came up that I believe was just something that they tried to tackle on to make sure that he couldn't get out of their grasp. Yeah. And so, um, and then we had a um, another Spanish attorney who was more knowledgeable in at the extradition process and who had done, you know, who had went up against the um, or had fought cases where, where Spanish uh, citizens were in danger of being deported to, to America. Mm -hmm. So he was experienced in that. And then we had a, a UK attorney because John had dual citizenship. So we were working every possible um, angle, right? And everybody, all of us, all of the attorneys, myself, John, we all understood that they were going to grant this extradition. We knew that it was not a surprise. And so we understood that going in. And, and there was a, 
you know, kind of a tentative plan in place of, of what to do, what the next steps would be once that happened. Obviously, we were hoping that maybe they wouldn't do that, but of course, that's what we were prepared for. So when that happened and they granted the extradition, again, it wasn't a surprise to anyone. So John didn't all of a sudden become, you know, depressed because of this decision, right? Like I said, we knew it was going to be what they said. And so, um, so I spoke to him in the morning and before he went to court and that's what we discussed, you know, they're probably going to grant the extradition, but you know, the, the extradition process is going to take, you know, time, you know, so you won't get, you know, extradited next tomorrow or the next week or the next month or next year, you know, it's going to be, you know, appeals and all of these things. So it's going to be a process before that actually happens. So, so he wasn't in any danger of being extradited immediately, right? He wasn't going to go back to his cell and then be told, okay, pack up your stuff. You're being shipped back to America. That wasn't going to happen. So mm -hmm. we spoke again in the afternoon after he uh, came back from court. And again, you know, his mood was, was just, he was a little disappointed, obviously, but but he was still right back. Okay, so when is the lawyer coming to see me? What did what was the plan or what did you guys discuss? Because I was kind of the intermediator intermediary uh, for him because he only had eight minute link calls, you know. And so I spoke to the attorneys and was able to let him know what exactly they were saying, and and that's what we discussed. And and the last things that he said to me was, "I love you." and I'll, I'll call you later and so um so you know the day goes on and I'm waiting for the third call and I'm on Twitter on stupid Twitter and I get a DM notification and it says um in all capital letters oh my god tell me this isn't true and so um you know immediately obviously immediately I'm thinking you know something about John and so I just go to Google and sure enough um it says there that that he was found dead um by suicide and that's how I actually found out that he was dead I didn't get a phone call from the prison his attorney didn't get a phone call from the prison the prison had my phone number um they had his attorney's phone numbers. They could have called us and said, you know, they should have called us and said, it's absolutely disgusting way to have to find out. Um, and so, um, so, so immediately I'm angry, you know, and immediately I have a problem with this because why the hell am I finding out through a Google search that my husband is dead? And how the hell are you saying that it's a suicide when when you've you've not done an autopsy or anything like that? But I guess you know the the situation and circumstances of how he was found. Okay, but it wasn't until the I was able to get the prison's investigative report. So the prison opened an investigation immediately into his death, and um, in their report was where I found out how what actually happened which was that he was not dead he was still alive when they found him so when the guard first found him he still had a pulse okay he was not dead and so um who gave you this information who gave you this information this is in the uh 
the prison's investigative report. Okay. So this is the part of their report where it's where it says that he was alive. This this is the the statement given. Um, it's it was just sort of a general statement that was given of how how he was found and, and um. All right. Okay. Um, this is a lot, Janice. Okay. This is a lot. So, so he was alive. Okay. And, and for me, you know, um, that raises a whole bunch of other questions now, you know, what happened then from the time that you found him alive to the time that he was pronounced dead? What, what did you do? you know, what, what things were done. And, and then how can you then say, which, which then, you know, the, the next question then is how can you then say he died by suicide when he was still alive? So, so he didn't, you know, they, it wasn't that, that, that caused his death. He still had a pulse. Something else had to have caused his death, right? I mean, at least that's what I'm thinking. Listen, I'm not a forensic scientist. I don't understand these things, but to me, if he has a pulse and he's alive, you know, then that means that whatever, whatever happened, didn't it didn't succeed, right? So there, so there would have to be another cause of death, at least to me. Um, and so that's why I, I was asking for the autopsy report. And what the courts tried to do was they tried to close the investigation without giving the autopsy report. And so I asked the attorney to file an appeal so that um uh, file file an appeal to request the autopsy report and to keep the the investigation open because if I allowed them to close it I couldn't go back and get the autopsy report and and I don't know why I just felt important that I needed to have that information you know um there are statements being made publicly you know in in different news articles that they stand by their autopsy report okay hey so let me see it like why can't i have it if you stand by what's in it okay give it to me like what like what's the problem you know um now they they say that it's not standard procedure to to give an autopsy report but when it's asked for it's produced and so i don't i don't know why it hasn't been produced yet and the attorney is well there's either one of two things that that might be happening either there's something in the report that they don't want me to see and they're trying to not release it for that reason or they just didn't do one you know and so this is this is the only two things that really make sense as to why this has been dragged out so long you know so from the time that i filed the appeal or had the attorney file the appeal in february of 2022 they had six to eight months to respond, you know, and that would have taken us to October at the latest. And here we are now almost two years since he died. And I'm still waiting and almost, um, well, over a year uh, waiting for the appeal or the uh, response to the appeal. Um, and so, so that's what's happening here. And I'm still here in Spain. I refuse to leave without John. I'm not going to leave without his his body. Um, we came to Spain together, and we will leave Spain together. And and I also feel that if I leave here, then, I mean, I can't say that they haven't already destroyed his his body. Like I don't know that. You know, it's, look how much time has passed. You know, so I don't know. 
but I can say with great assurance that if I left, that's, that's definitely what they would do, you know? And so, um, so, you yeah, know, the notorious that, for using bureaucracy to prevent fact finding. Um, yeah. can I ask you an insensitive question that I feel insensitive asking you, and I don't mean for it to be insensitive. I'm, I, did they let you see his body? And if so, were they transparent in any way, shape, or form about the current state of his corporal form? No. No, so, so. Um, so to your knowledge, on. nobody has actually seen John's body. Well, no, I, I saw, I saw his body. Okay. okay. But, but how I saw his body was I wasn't able to view him fully because they had the sheet covering him because they were um, allegedly in the middle of, of um, doing the autopsy. So his chest was open. And so, um, so I could only see him from, you know, from the neck up, right? Which I know that doesn't help those people that like to say that maybe he's alive. And, and so I understand that, but I, I'm, but I couldn't, I wouldn't feel comfortable saying, oh, yes, I saw his body. Because then people would say, okay, well, well did you see this tattoo or did you see that tattoo? You know, because oh. obviously that's what people want to know. And so I, I'm, I'm not going to lie and say that I saw that. So I'm just going to tell you what I did see. And I saw his face and his head and all of that. And, and it looked like him. Okay. You know, um, I know his face very well. And so, um, the things that I would normally look for, I, that's what I looked for. And so, um, with, without seeing his full body, I'm, I could say comfortably that it was him. Okay. I'm sure that it was him. Yeah. Um, I think for people who doubt the integrity of this, the authorities who are keeping this information from you, it might be a tad touch suspicious that you know, but um, also, you know, of course it is. It's just, it's just to me. But my thing is this. Okay, let me just answer this as well. As far as um, if it's been almost two years now, right? And there's no way in hell that I would not have heard from John by now. Just to say something, I I would never let anybody know, right? Because that that would just be for me. But I've not heard anything, you know. I don't allegedly, there's, still... allegedly there's this Telegram page, right? And it's like, you know, I've got people that, you know, will boost you on this Telegram. And it's like, okay, if he's on Telegram telling people that he's alive, then he can tell me, right? He can contact me and say, hey, bitch, you know, I'm okay. <laughs> like, you can leave Spain now, you know, but keep the act up. Something, right? You know what I'm saying? I don't know. But, but it's just ridiculous. And that's what it just, I'm only addressing this because it's so frustrating to me. Because of course I think of these things. Of course I've, I've obsessed about it. Mm. I've absolutely obsessed about it, you know? And, um, and I do think, I will say this, I think that might've been the plan. I think it might've been a plan for him to um, John McAfee himself out of the situation, right? You know, um, but I think they killed him instead. Before that could happen, they killed him. And 
And that's just, you know, that's just my speculation, my honest speculation about this, because I just, I just truly believe that I, I would have heard something by now or some, someone reliable, not Samantha in a stupid Netflix documentary saying, oh, I got a call from someone who said they were John and he asked me to run away with it. Like, give me a break. You know what I'm saying? That didn't happen. Um, I'm sorry. That's okay. it's it's absurd thank you for sharing that that was not easy to talk about and I'm sure that was one of the worst moments of your life and so I don't I didn't want to handle that in a way that made you feel any you know like I'm being you know me but being remotely insensitive and I'm sorry I just I think it's important for people to know uh, um, whatever you're willing to provide about this experience that you had trying to just simply get his body back um so can you tell me a little bit about, you know, I, I let me let me say something really fast before, and then I'd like to ask you another question. So one of the things that you and I had talked about over the last couple of years, you know, I've been fighting breast cancer for 16 months. So I've been a little bit out of the loop, but we've been touching base on a project we're going to discuss in a minute. And one of the things that I have found extremely admirable about you is that you know, you've laughed a couple of times when we've talked about media and you doing media and you're like, nobody wants to hear from a hooker. <laughs> like joking around. <laughs> but if that's all you are, you are the most loyal hooker I've ever seen in my entire <laughs> life, ma'am. You get the gold star for that because you've been through hell, Janice, and I'm not making light of it. You really have. And I don't, I think there's a small selection of human beings on this planet that have ever experienced remotely what you're experiencing with having to try to bury their rem family's remains and not being able to do so, right? That's a unique form of suffering. And um, I just, I want to call out that it's heroic what you're trying to do. And I commend you for it. And it's exactly what, believe it or not, I would expect out of you. And so I commend you. And I really truly think it, it, shows your your true character and I can't say that I would be trying to do anything different if I was in your situation so woman to woman my heart is yours um so one thing I know that you and I have talked about is for the last two years you have really been trying to be extremely careful and diligent with not disrupting the authorities too much because we just wanted to give them a chance to not use any excuse not use any reason at all and we have so it's been almost two years can you share what is happening next and what people can do to support you and let's talk a little bit about john's legacy and how we want it to be portrayed um what action so, are we taking <laughs> what, well what is happening next is i'm trying to navigate um you know on, honestly well I'm, I'm just gonna be honest here I, I i have to i think what's going to happen next is me literally having to declare war here on this situation just because um just because of the things that are in the investigative report and is corroborated by this the, by the footage that I was shown of when John was found 
and and without going into too much detail, the 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 official narrative is not true. He didn't die by suicide. Um, well, I'm not I'm not prepared to to go as far as saying it was murder. Um, maybe medical malpractice. Um, but it's but it but there is but there is um evidence there of that, and this is not just me speaking out of turn. This is documented from the things that the prison gave us. And so um, so that is the next steps. And so that is a part of why I'm doing these interviews um, and, and also trying to be uh, cautious about how this war is declared, you know, because obviously, like you just mentioned, I'm only mentioning this because you said, you know, I've been trying to give not uh, overstep the authorities here. And I really haven't have been trying to do that. But we're talking two years now, and this is ridiculous. And all and the only thing that I feel that they're going to continue to do is drive this out. And so, um, so that's kind of the next steps preparing for that eventuality. And so, in in preparing in preparation for that, um, you you and um, two other friends of ours have um, uh, created the John McAfee Foundation. You can go to John McAfee foundation.org and and see the website and kind of get familiar with what we're trying to do so um obviously we're, we're using this uh this foundation to bring attention to what's happening here in spain and to um if people want a way to support what's happening here in spain i'm looking to um possibly add additional uh, uh attorney support for the current attorney just because um this situation I think is bigger than what he's able to handle. And so um, additional additional legal support, I think would be very helpful as far as moving this along. Also, it's a way for people to stay up to date with what's happening and updates with what's happening. But the bigger um, idea of the foundation is to carry on John's legacy of freedom, privacy, and technology and, and, and to inspire the next generation of free thinkers, but also to kind of partner with um, different organizations that are offering support to people who are being um, persecuted by their, you know, by their governments, you know, I think, I think it's very important. And I think I'm in a, also in a very unique situation to, to, um, I don't necessarily want to say teach, but but I guess educate maybe the spouses of of those people who are are the target of of some persecution or who are whistleblowers, and you know they're now having to live this life of of um, sort of going underground and all of that. And I and I feel like I have a unique positioning where I can offer some tips on how to how to navigate that because it's not easy. It's stressful, and um, I don't think there's enough, there's enough support out there. There's not a, a voice out there, you know? And I mean, when you think about what, what Julian Assange's wife is going through, you know, and, and, you know, she has people that's rallying around her, but what about the lesser known, you know, whistleblowers, you know, and, and what support are their family members getting, you know, because this, it's, again it's such a stressful thing and it's 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 all consuming you know you there's 
you know, when we talk about what's next, the only thing that I can think about what's next is 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 getting John's body and and, and making sure that people know what's happened here. Like I can't even think about like five years from now, who do, where do I see myself? I don't have no idea. You know, this is just the situation. Like I said, it's all consuming. And and I want the foundation to also kind of be um, a haven for that as well. You know, a, a place to where, where people can find support, you know, or where we can shuttle people to the proper support. And I just want to have to create a network of, of these things, you know, and also um, because of the things that I want to champion, which is women's, you know, women that are in similar situations uh, with with the prostitution, with the sex trafficking, human trafficking, you know, I, there's just so much, so many things that um, I think um, sort of overlap with what John, what, what John stood for and what he believed in. And, um, and so that's kind of the goal of the, the foundation to, to take that wealth of, of knowledge and information that John left behind and use it to, to progress it and to also inspire the next generation of, of free thinkers. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I'm uh, excited about that. We're kind of, we're launching in what I'd like to call like baby stealth, right? Um, we're not making a big stink right now. We're just kind of putting feelers out there and getting organized. We've, you know, this foundation has been around for 18 months and we've just been uh, plugging away in the background. And I think the more we talk about the fact that his body has not been recovered and that, um, you know, there's a lot of runaround that we're being given the more people are aware of what's actually happening and can actually support and help us get John home. And so I really appreciate you sticking your neck out as always and talking about what we're trying to achieve and what you're trying to achieve. It's um, I think John would be very proud of what we're building and of you and of everything that we're trying to do for him. And so I applaud you. And, and anything else that you'd like to say, any other way that people can help you if they're listening to this, um, anything else you wanted to share? Um, yeah, maybe just share, you know, share this interview, share this, um, you know, this information, you know, I feel like maybe there's a little bit of shadow banning that was happening for a while. And, and honestly, I'm, I'm a bit fatigued. <laughs> um, this has been going on for so long and I feel like I've just been pissing in the wind. You know what I'm saying? I feel like, like I've just been trying to put attention on this, but it's just for whatever reason, it's just not happening. You know, I've been tweeting, you know, there's a way, I mean, you guys can go on my Twitter account at the Mrs. McAfee, um, and see, you know, I've been tweeting since he was in prison, you know, tweeting things out and, and, um, you know, giving information just about what's happening. But again, like I said, it just feels like I'm pissing in the wind. And, and so um, that can that can do a lot to help, you know, to amplify what's happening here. Because I, I think a lot of people don't know what's happening. There was even someone that I did an interview with that said that they didn't even think, they didn't even know John was dead. Like he, like they saw the news and was like, nope, that's not true. And just carried on with their life okay <laughs> you know like but this is you know this is 
a thing, you know, but, but because, you know, and then you, you have to understand, I guess, you know, John played into that sort of mysteries, you know, sort of thing. And it's not the first time that, um, you know, he was reported dead. I think, I think years ago in like 2013, there was a story that came out saying that he had overdosed in a, in a casino hotel in Vegas. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's just, there's just a lot of things. And then you have people saying he's on, you know, Telegram. So I, I don't know what people believe, but I just, you know, just, you know, that was a lot if you just shared, you know, shared what's going on. And, um, well, we can say unequivocally, John McAfee is not on Telegram, just so you guys know. That is a fake account, but it's not a real account. So it's not at all. And so, um, um, what else would I like to say? Um, something that John would always say when he would end his interviews or his podcast interviews and he would say do what you love and and do only what you love in life because life is too short to waste your time doing anything other than what you love you know because if you're not doing that you're suffering your family if you have one they're suffering because you are not being the authentic you that you were meant to be so so stop dicking around stop wasting your time doing things that you don't love and and find the thing that you love and and the universe or the or the world life will find a way to reward you financially for that you know maybe you won't be able to buy lamborghinis and all of that fancy stuff but you will be fulfilled in a way that you could never be fulfilled if you were doing something other than what you love so i love it i am just so proud of you and how you're handling this with grace and just being yourself. It's beautiful to just watch, I think, your true love for John kind of unfold in real time. But I would also like for you to be released from this situation um, and come home. And so everything we can do to make that happen is a worthwhile effort, in my opinion. So. Well, Janice, we're at time. I appreciate you so much. I uh, appreciate your candor. I appreciate how you always tell the truth, (laughs) what you're thinking, because you've had such a complicated, you know, I think relationship with coming into your own and standing in your truth. And I'm proud of you. And I think it's not, it's not an easy thing to always do. And so I commend you for it. And yeah, uh, leave for the show notes notes so that everyone can find the John McAfee Foundation as well as follow Janice on Twitter. And with that, we are done. Thank you so much. Thank you. You have just listened to Tiffany Madison Conversations, a podcast about the nature of humanity, spirituality, healing, consciousness, technology, and love in revolutionary times. I'm a mother of three, a three-time entrepreneur, and a stage four breast cancer survivor. To support my work and the podcast, check out my Patreon or Give Butter fundraising that is covering my treatment costs as I defy my prognosis and walk the path of my higher self until God brings me home. Many thanks to all of those who have donated and supported the podcast. Much love to you all.